Today is Thursday, June twenty third, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, a devastating quake in Afghanistan kills more than thirteen hundred people. More than one thousand people have been killed and around two thousand injured because of this calamity. The visit of the Saudi Crown Prince to the Middle East comes amid worries over Iran's nuclear buildup. He wants to have an air defense umbrella to besiege Iran and put a lot of pressure on Iran. And European leaders hold a key summit on Ukraine's bid to join the EU. We'll have these stories and more next. At least 1,300 people were killed and more than 1,600 others injured after a 5.9 magnitude earthquake struck a remote and mountainous region of southeastern Afghanistan near the border with Pakistan. VOA reporter Ayaz Gul in Islamabad describes the deaths, injuries, and damage. They confirmed that more than 1,000 people have been killed and around 2,000 injured. Because of this calamity, but uh, because it's it's a remote area, very close to the border with Pakistan, and uh, it's a poverty-stricken region. Both the provinces, the worst-hit provinces of Pakhtika and Host of Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, the this country has been、uh, plagued by war for decades. So, the infrastructure, even in major urban centers, is not as good as it should be. Not to speak of these border provinces. So obviously, we will know maybe by tomorrow morning the exact extent of the damage that has been caused by this earthquake. You mentioned it's very remote there, very mountainous too. What's going on in terms of search and rescue? Have you been able to talk to anyone that's been closer to the area that got hit? No. What we know from the Uh, this side of the border, the Pakistani military and Pakistani civilian authorities have been trying to、uh, take in assistance because these are the areas right on the border with Pakistan. So Pakistani government quickly arranged some kind of relief packages uh, and uh, loading them on the trucks, and they are carrying what we know, like from an hour ago. Although it's,、uh, we knew that a shipment was supposed to cross、uh, the into Afghanistan around this time. Uh, and we also know that、uh, the efforts were underway. Rescue operation had not been stopped; it was continuing because、uh, there, there are fears that so many people have been buried under the rubble. You know, these we have seen videos:、uh, houses have been flattened. You know, in fact, one entire village、uh, was destroyed by by the earthquake. So it seems that the Taliban. You know, one thing is significant about the Taliban that they have they are battle hardened. They have been fighting wars. Uh, uh, for over the last 20 years, they have been battling international forces. So they never stop、uh, their activities, whether it's fighting or it's rescue operations. So it is continuing. You mentioned that the area has the Taliban there, and had it been a heavy area of fighting before, during, after the Taliban took charge. So how has that affected the search and rescue operations? Plus, how is the weather coloring what's going on there? That is a, a good question because when the earthquake hit. Weather was really bad, unusual. I mean, unusually, it was raining in that area, which is usually very hot during summer, especially in June, in the month of June. But it was raining there, strong wind, and which 
prevented rescue teams from, you know, reaching the scene after the earthquake hit these two provinces of Afghanistan. That's why the first confirmed reports we received like 10 hours after uh, the earthquake had caused the damage. And uh, it, it, it shows that uh, things uh, were, were difficult and they're still difficult to, to be ascertained. But this area where the earthquake struck actually has been a traditional Taliban stronghold. It's a Pashtun-dominated area and Taliban and especially the Haqqani network, which also fought together with the Taliban against the American and international forces over the last 20 years. This is their stronghold and this is where they really received support from the population. So that's why uh, they were uh, able to bring in some assistance and uh, launch rescue operations on their own. But again, as I said, they really lack equipment. They do not have enough helicopters. They do not have ambulances. Is it possible that people who were injured are going to die because they can't get the treatment they need? That's a good question because Afghanistan has been, you know, witnessing or experiencing war for the last four decades. And what we know for sure is that because of the war and a persistent drought, uh, the, uh, you know, half, more than half of the population uh, are a, already in need of urgent assistance. That is VOA reporter Ayaz Ghul. He was speaking with me on Wednesday from Islamabad, Pakistan. European leaders hold a major summit Thursday and Friday with one top item on their agenda, ensuring that Ukraine's bid to be a candidate for the bloc stays on track. As Lisa Bryant reports from Paris, the meeting comes amid heightened tensions between Europe and Moscow while the war drags on in Ukraine. Hours before the European Union summit, France, which currently holds the presidency of the Council of the EU, offered a confident assessment of Kiev's candidacy application. France's Europe Minister Clément Bonne said there is total consensus in favor following discussions among EU country representatives. Now, he says, it's up to their leaders to formally vote on Ukraine's candidate status Thursday, along with those of Moldova and Georgia. Kiev has been pushing hard to join the 27-member bloc as soon as possible. Some EU countries like Portugal and Denmark earlier expressed reservations. But last week, European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen offered a strong endorsement. Ukrainians are ready to die for the European perspective. We want them to live with us the European dream. But it seems unlikely EU leaders will agree to Ukraine's call for fast-tracking its application. Being admitted into the bloc can take years or decades. I mean, I think if there were a fast track, then it would provoke some uproar from the Western Balkan countries, from a number of countries who've been in the anti-chamber of this candidate status for a while now. Tara Varma heads the Paris office of the European Council on Foreign Relations Policy Institute. I think the, the Europeans need to be quite careful about how they deal with this. Honestly, already granting candidate status in such a short period would be quite, quite the revolution. France is pushing for an intermediary association for Ukraine and other non-EU members in the meantime. So with your permission, can, you, can I invite you to, to this place? This week's summit follows a visit to Ukraine by leaders of France, Germany and Italy, the EU's three most powerful members, along with Romania. Beyond the symbolism, they promise to deliver more weapons, a source of tension with Ukraine, among other issues.
But while EU leaders have displayed remarkable unity in agreeing to ever stronger sanctions against Russia over the war, European citizens are feeling its economic backlash. The European Council on Foreign Relations. Tara Varma. Europeans will also have to think about how they deal with the situation at home as well, because we're seeing increasing an increasing sense of worry from the European population side, and of course, the beginning of a war fatigue. Also up for discussion this summit will be the bloc's deteriorating relationship with Moscow. Over the past week, Russia has cut off natural gas exports to more EU countries, notably heavyweights France and Germany. It's also threatened EU and NATO member Lithuania over its rail transit blockade of some goods to the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. Meanwhile, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell has called Russia's own blockade of Ukraine's grain exports, which are critical for some of the world's poorest countries, a war crime. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has condemned Iran's increasing use of executions and the death penalty, including among children, in violation of international law. The Secretary General has submitted a report on the human rights situation in Iran to the UN Human Rights Council. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The Secretary General has deplored Tehran's increasing use of executions and the death penalty, saying they are based on charges that do not amount to the most serious crimes and are incompatible with fair trial standards. UN Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights Nada al-Nashif, who presented the report, said at least 570 people were executed in the past two years, many on drug-related charges. Those executed, she says, included at least 14 women and more than 100 people belonging to minority groups. Al-Nashif decried the execution of at least two child offenders between August 2021 and March 2022 in violation of international law. She said more than 85 child offenders remain on death row. Patterns of arbitrary deprivation of life due to excessive force used by the authorities against border couriers, peaceful protesters and those in detention continued with impunity. The scale of deaths in detention, both as a result of violence and ill-treatment by officials and due to the lack of timely access to medical care, is of serious concern. The report accuses the Iranian government of keeping a tight grip on its population through increasingly repressive measures. It says the government maintains total control through restrictive legislation, the use of violence, and widespread violations of people's human rights. Al-Nashif cited a series of legislative measures with detrimental consequences for people's reproductive rights and uncensored access to the Internet. However, the laws, she said, fail to criminalize violence against women and they undermine minority rights, particularly the Baha'i religious minority. Civic and democratic space continue to be restricted with human rights defenders and civil society actors operating within a coercive environment where violations are committed with impunity. In April and May of 2022, at least 55 individuals, teachers, lawyers, 
labor rights defenders, artists, and academics were arrested during protests. Iran's deputy permanent representative in Geneva, Mehdi Ali Abadi, denounced the report as an appalling and disgraceful political tool used by the United States and Canada against his country. He said the report was biased and based on false allegations. He said Iran was fully committed to the protection and promotion of human rights and respected its international obligations. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You're listening to VOA News. In other news, U.S. President Joe Biden is calling on Congress to suspend federal gasoline and diesel taxes for three months, an election year effort to ease financial pressures on consumers. It's not clear Biden has the votes to suspend the taxes. Many lawmakers in his own party are hesitant to back the idea. Biden says he knows the move will not, in his words, reduce all the pain, but it will be a big help. If the tax savings proposal is passed by Congress, consumers would save about 3.6% at the pump. New global data shows that emissions of heat-trapping gases coming from mixing cement have doubled in the last 20 years. That's much faster than the carbon pollution from burning coal, gas, and oil. Even during the pandemic shutdown, carbon dioxide emissions from cement making never dropped. Scientists say the increase is driven by China, which produces more than half of the world's cement carbon emissions. For more on these stories and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman continued his whirlwind Middle East tour in Jordan and Turkey Wednesday on the heels of his visit to Egypt on Tuesday. The visit comes ahead of a trip next month by U.S. President Biden to Saudi Arabia in which various regional issues, including energy exports, are scheduled to be discussed. Edward Uranian has the details for VOA from Cairo. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was feted as a visiting head of state during talks in both Turkey and Jordan Wednesday, along with Egypt a day earlier. In Cairo, he met top Egyptian leaders and inked $7.7 billion in 14 separate trade deals. Saudi Arabia is also a top investor in Jordan, and the visit strengthened that position. MBS regional visit has been expected for a while, but its exact timing may be tied to the shaky health of his 86-year-old father, King Salman bin Abdulaziz. Visits to Jordan and Turkey reflect both business and political relations between Riyadh and the two key regional states. Analysts say ties with Iran, the situation in Yemen, and regional defense issues were part of the discussions. A visit to Iraq appears to have been postponed because of political uncertainty in the country and the inability to form a new government. 
Egyptian political sociologist Saeed Sadiq tells VOA that MBS visit has been in the works for a while and it comes a month before Biden's trip to the region and amid growing worries over Iran's nuclear capabilities. He wants to have an air defense umbrella to besiege Iran and put a lot of pressure on Iran. And so maybe they want to show the Iranians that we can have a military option that would involve the six Gulf states, Jordan and Egypt. Because of this Biden visit, the regional leaders had to make several meetings to see where we stand. So there is a lot of diplomatic activity in the area to arrange and prepare a unified stance when Biden comes to the area. Sadiq adds that Riyadh is expected to tighten ties with Israel in private and the air defense agreement is part of the strategy, although it is unlikely to have any public exchange of diplomatic relations. Egypt, he asserts, is being enticed to participate in the umbrella, albeit, he thinks, in a private, unofficial way. The Gulf states, he notes, are likely to increase energy sales to the U.S. as a part of Biden's upcoming visit. Qatar Abu Diab, who teaches political science at the University of Paris, tells VOA that Ben Salman's regional trip is one more milestone on the road to becoming king of Saudi Arabia and that he is positioning himself as a top leader in an increasingly strong Arab bloc. He says it is important for the Arab states to have a common position regarding the key issues of the day, including the Iranian situation, Palestine, and the stance of Arab states toward the U.S., not to mention the fact the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine has introduced even more issues into Arab-U.S. relations. MBS visit to Turkey follows a recent visit by Turkish President Erdogan to Riyadh, according to Qatar Abu Diab, and indicates that Ankara has buried the hatchet over the killing of Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi and is now mostly interested in improving economic ties with Saudi Arabia. Edward Uranian for VOA News, Cairo. Major flooding has forced the evacuation of tens of thousands of people in wide swaths of southern China. Jennifer King of the Associated Press has this report. Floodwaters from heavy rainfall have collapsed roads, submerged houses and factories, and swept away cars and crops in the manufacturing hub of Guangdong. China regularly sees flooding in the summer months, but this year is considered the worst in decades. Officials have suspended school, office work, and public transportation in the South China province amid rising waters. Chinese state TV showed city streets waist-deep in water. In neighboring Jiangxi, rescue crews in inflatable boats evacuated residents trapped in their homes in inundated villages. Storm warnings have been issued with more rain expected in eastern provinces, including the capital, Beijing. I'm Jennifer King. This is VOA News. This is Science in a Minute. One of the most mysterious and fascinating celestial objects is a black hole. Thanks to today's advanced astronomical technology, scientists are learning more as they make incredible discoveries. A team of astronomers led by researchers at the Australian National University in Canberra say that they've recently found the fastest growing black hole of the past 9 billion years. 
They say that the supermassive black hole, identified as J1144, eats the amount of material comparable to one Earth every second. It's so luminous that the team says it glows about 7,000 times brighter than all the light from the Milky Way. J1144 has a reported mass of approximately 2.6 billion suns and is located in the constellation Centaurus. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and our panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including Senate Republicans downplay the impact of the House January 6 hearings, which have shed new light on former President Trump's role in the attack on the Capitol building to stop the certification of Joe Biden's election victory. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. To all our VOA listeners, please note that we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been VOA's International Edition. On behalf of the entire production team, thanks so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. Have a terrific day. An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Friday, June 3rd, marked 100 days since Russian President Vladimir Putin instigated a massive deadly war against Ukraine. Over the last weeks and months, Putin waged a brutal war against the people of Ukraine. The Russian military specifically targeted non-combatants, apartment buildings, railroad stations, schools, and hospitals. Thousands died and millions more were displaced. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that two of every three Ukrainian children were displaced from their homes. In the 100 days since Russia's full-scale invasion began, the UNHCR registered nearly 7 million border border crossings out of Ukraine. 
But the Ukrainians are fighting back, and they have had success. They are regaining ground lost in the initial days of Russia's assault. They have liberated towns and villages, pushing back the invaders, recording the horrible atrocities committed by Russia's forces. And where just a few months ago Ukrainians crossed borders to safety, they are now returning to help rebuild their country. At least two million have already returned to Ukraine, according to the UNHCR. In the 100 days since Russian President Putin ordered his forces to further invade Ukraine, the world has seen the courage and determination of the people of Ukraine as they fight for their country," said Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The United States, along with our friends and allies, stands by Ukraine and offers maximum support. Since February 24th, the United States has provided more than 6.3 billion dollars of security, humanitarian, and economic assistance to help Ukraine prevail," said Secretary Blinken. We again call on President Putin to immediately end this conflict and all the suffering and global upheaval his war of choice has caused. Neither the United States nor our allies and partners seek to prolong the war to inflict pain on Russia. We greatly respect the citizens of Russia who are not our enemy and who deserve a better future than what continued war and increasing repression will bring," he said. To the families of Ukraine who have lost loved ones, who have been separated by violence, whose villages, apartments, schools, and hospitals have been hit by bombs, shells, and missiles, who have been sent to and survived Russia's so-called filtration camps, the United States stands with you. We will help you defend your sovereignty and territorial integrity, and we will help you rebuild when this war is over. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.